Well, I want us to begin tonight in our study where we left off last Lord's Day or the last time we were in John chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles open to John chapter 11, we ended our time in verse 46 and we were looking into the resurrection of Lazarus. And it ended really in a somewhat rather anticlimactic fashion. And the people who had witnessed what had taken place, they really had two different reactions. And interestingly enough, we are somewhat stunned when you read this text to find out that only some of them believed uh, in Christ, even though beyond any kind of refutation at all, he had proven himself to be the giver of life rather than simply just a man. It's really even more astonishing as you look at this text when you read that these unbelievers were not simply just those who quietly said that they're uh, that they weren't believers or said in their hearts, I just don't believe my eyes, you know, as if the miracle was some kind of magic act. But rather they were these kinds of unbelievers who went public with their disbelief. They reported Christ to the ruling authorities in the Jewish faith. In fact, the rejection of Christ by these people, as we will come to learn, became the pattern for the rejection of Christ throughout the rest of this gospel. From here on out, this is all you see. Because after ministering and doing miracles for now nearly three years, faith was not the response of the many. You would think that it would be the response of the many who had seen the miracles, who had been around, who had heard about the miracles, but in fact it is not the response of the many, but rather the response of the few. The words of Jesus Christ in Matthew are certainly clear, narrow is the way to heaven, and few there are that find it. Jesus Christ, being who He is, God in the flesh, the one who came to His own, as John says in John chapter 1, the one who is the bread of life and the living water is also the one who, here in John chapter 11, proves that He is resurrection and life. John 15 says He is the good, or John 10 says He's the good shepherd, and who was finally yet rejected and nailed to a cross. But before worldwide dishonor of Jesus Christ reaches its highest point on the cross, God, who is always jealous for His Son's glory, designed it that Christ should do this one climactic miracle in face of all the rejection. And the miracle is just what we find here in chapter 11, the resurrection of Lazarus. The miracle is for Israel to recognize that even if they reject Christ, He is still who He has claimed to be. He is still, in fact, all that He has said throughout the entire Gospel of John. He is the one who can and does reveal His divine power and God, by His grace, has given glory to Himself and to His Son through this very miracle, just as Jesus said He would do. Verse 
verse 4, he says, Lazarus' sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified. So as I have been saying all along, or at least have said even here in our beginning tonight, this miracle had two effects. It brought faith to the hearts of the disciples. Verse 15 shows us that. I'm glad Lazarus is, or Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. So it brought faith to the disciples who were following Jesus Christ. Not simply those who became the apostles, but more than that, others believed in Jesus Christ. Those who both had already faith in Jesus Christ, and this miracle brought those who believed in Jesus in new faith. Altogether new believers who had never believed before, but it also gave another response, and that is those who rejected Christ. In fact, those first century reactions are no different, really, than the reactions that people have for Christ today. There's really only two reactions to Jesus Christ even today. You either believe or you reject. Those are the only two options. Man's heart is open to such things as what the Gospels say about Jesus Christ and all of the things that it says, the convincing miracles that happen. And in our day, God is doing a miracle all the time when He raises a dead soul to life and saves someone by His grace. If someone's heart is receptive to the realities of who they are and who God is, they might, in fact, be drawn by God to believe. Verse 46 tells us some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. In other words, they came to the miracle in unbelief and they left in that same way. They didn't even bother to find out the plausible explanation for the miracle itself. And... They simply ran to inform the Pharisees what kind of trouble the Pharisees would have on their hands because of Jesus. That their very livelihood was in trouble. By the way, just a side note, it's interesting if you read commentators on this passage. They say interesting things about these in verse 45 who had believed, and some of them who had believed went away. They say some interesting things about these believers or unbelievers because some will try to convince you that they were well-intentioned believers. They were trying to testify to the Pharisees. They were trying to, in fact, share with the Pharisees the truth of Jesus Christ. But I, I find that hard to believe. Now, first of all, because unlike the man in John chapter 9, remember the blind man in John chapter 9 who the Pharisees were questioning at length about him and he had to give testimony just like these people went and told the Pharisees. He was told to tell them what happened. Unlike him who was quizzed by the Pharisees about Jesus after he was healed, nothing is said about these people after this very thing. John doesn't include anything about them like he did in John chapter 9, I'm told much about the one who 
actually was quizzed by the Pharisees about the miracle that happened on him. And secondly, because John has already mentioned those who believed in verse 45, that Mary had beheld what he had done, believed in him, and the Jews who came with her. He mentions the believers there, so it seems to make no sense to contrast them with these in verse 46 by saying some of them were believers too who went and told the Pharisees. I don't think they were believers at all. I believe they came with evil intentions to the Pharisees, intentions of warning the Pharisees that the crowds might in fact follow Jesus if they were not careful in what they did and they were successful, in fact, in their warning. I was thinking about that. Isn't that really the predictable result of people who have hard hearts? Show them the truth. You can open the truth to them. You can show them Jesus Christ. You can verify all kinds of things through the Word of God. There's God. There He is right before you. But they still don't respond in faith. They still reject Jesus Christ. Why? Because there is no capacity in the unbelieving person to perceive the truth. We heard that this morning. There's no capacity within any person who doesn't know Jesus Christ already, who's an unbeliever, to understand the things of God. As long as a person refuses to hear that information about God, you will be unable to communicate it to him in any kind of way because they already have their minds set. They already have their hearts refusing anything that has to do with Jesus Christ. The really sad part is that because of their total depravity, they can't understand because they won't understand. It's a predetermined unbelief. It doesn't even bother to rationalize, let alone investigate the evidence. That's what you have in these people. You have the irrational reality of unbelief. I mean, here it is, a miracle staring them in the face that is irrefutable. They don't even refute the miracle, and yet they refuse to believe. Jews who had collaborated with the Pharisees didn't even worry about the miracle at all. They didn't even think about it at all. You'd think, if you, if you just think about the narrative that John gives us here, anyone who could stand at a grave and watch a man who had been in the grave for four days come out and not believe in the person who actually did it is a hopeless case. They're hopeless. Why the Bible says no man can come to me, to Jesus, except the Father draw him in John chapter 6. Nobody can come unless the Father draw him. It doesn't matter. You can have a miracle right in front of you. I've heard people say this all the time. If Jesus just came and stood right in front of me, I'd believe. No, you wouldn't. Luke 16 is clear on that, right? Luke 16, they have the law, they have the prophets, and even if someone raised from the dead, they will not believe. We have an example of it right here in John chapter 11. No one can come to Christ unless God reaches into the heart, regenerates that person, and draws him to him and causes him to come out of death. So we have to remember that before we ever witness for Christ. We need to pray that God's going to till the soil of the heart. Pray that God will cultivate the soil of the heart to receive the very truth that we have to tell this person about the Savior. Now, just for our time tonight, I just want to kind of walk through these final verses of this narrative. 
And there are three principles that I just want to highlight for us as we walk through this. More accurately, really three features, if you will, of these verses that I just want to highlight for us. One is the plot against Christ. Two is the prophecy about Christ. And then third is just the perplexity of it all. One, the plot against Christ. Two, the prophecy about Christ. And third, just the perplexity of it all. Now let's look first then at the plot against Christ. The plot against Christ. Our text tells us that the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. That council is the Sanhedrin. Notice verse 47 says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council. This is the Sanhedrin. That's what the word in the original language means. For council, it's the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest judicial body for the Jews. It was their ruling body, yet it was under the control of the Roman government. They, they just couldn't do whatever they wanted. That's why when they wanted to kill Jesus, they had to go to Pilate. Pilate is a Roman governor over the area. But the Jews, the Sanhedrin, are the ones who really had the authority over the Jewish people by way of their religious practices. They were in charge of controlling the internal affairs of the Jews. They were in charge of whatever took place with the Jews. And it is made up of just that, Jewish people. If you think about it in our time or in modern day, we might liken it to the Supreme Court. The Sanhedrin was kind of like that. But unlike our Supreme Court, or at least ours that's set up in our country, the council not only had judicial power for the Jews, but they also had legislative and executive authority. So in one sense, it's like our entire government. They were the whole thing for the Jewish religious matters. So this is an extremely powerful group of men. And it was made up of high priests. The current high priest, who was the one who presides over the council, he was the one who who had the real uh, uh, order-making ability, and the previous high priest, along with other scribes that were part of it. The scribes were basically the lawyers. Now, the chief priest was normally a Sadducee. They were the theologian who were in opposition, typically theologically, to the Pharisees. Those two groups were normally at odds against one another in a theological reality. And you may remember that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That was their big hang-up. They didn't believe there was a coming resurrection. The Pharisees did believe there was a resurrection. So it's a strange group, really, to to bring together the Pharisees and this council, the chief priests, often opposing one another, and yet in this occasion they're coming together for one specific purpose. They're coming together against Christ. Why? Because clearly Jesus Christ, uh, this, this reality that's taking place surrounding Jesus Christ is more important to both within this group, the Pharisees and the the Sadducees. It's more important for them to be together against Christ than it is for them to be against each other. The Pharisees hated Christ. Why? Because of his religious views. 
He was always poking his finger at them in a good way in order to help them see the truth because they were the legalists of the day. They believed they could obey the law and become and be right with God. And he continually exposed that sin. The Sadducees hated Christ because he was a threat to their power. He was a threat to their power. That's really interesting to me in light of our own day because that's the attitude in our day. It doesn't seem to matter what arena you're in theologically, what arena you're in evangelically, whether it's the church. We've talked a little bit about some of us in the workplace here tonight. It doesn't matter if it's our neighborhood. Some people go to the post office or in politics. People would rather join together with the enemy rather than to be separate simply because you'd separate on truth and error. Liberalism just wants to join together. Winston Churchill years ago said this, quote, if Hitler invaded hell, he was sure that he would be able to find a good word to say for Satan in the House of Commons. Enemies join together. They join together against the same cause. I'll say I'll do whatever is necessary to save my political neck. That's the idea. Pharisees and the Sadducees were like that. Many people are like that spiritually. They'll attach themselves to every form of teaching, whatever it is, just as long as you don't bring up Jesus. Give me Jesus by any other name. Give me a Jesus who accommodates my sinfulness. Give me a Jesus who will let me do whatever I want to do. Give me a Jesus who doesn't really bother me. It doesn't matter if it's false teaching. It doesn't matter what it is. Give me another Jesus. Just don't bring up the real Jesus. Why? Because he doesn't meet my agenda. That's what we find here in this group. Notice what it says. They convene this council and they're saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. You see, Jesus was a major threat to their very style of life. If we let Jesus continue, our style of life is going to be over. In fact, They didn't even deny the fact that he's accomplishing the miracle. This man is performing many signs. No one's saying, wait a minute, I don't believe what he's doing is real. Nobody's even disputing the fact that he's doing that. You can imagine there might be just one person saying, why do we even believe he's doing it? It seems logical to ask the question, I mean, if you're going to go against someone, you at least ought to ask the question, are, is what he's doing real? I mean, are these verifiable things? I mean, they might say we've got to do something because he has done some miracles. But instead of recognizing him, they decide to kill him. Why? Because he's a threat to their status quo. The Romans are going to come. They're going to take away both our place. And our nation. In other words, if Christ is left unchecked, we're going to lose our position. We're going to lose our power. We're going to lose our 
posterity as a nation. They're not concerned about belief. They're not concerned about people. They're only concerned about protecting their own interests. Sounds like a governing body that we all know. They figured that if Jesus was going to be followed by the people, the people would push him into being a political messiah, a political savior of theirs. Rome would come down, squash the rebellion, take away their religious and political authority, and their lives would be over. In their minds, it was just this. Listen, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. Jesus isn't for me. That's the reality of the Pharisees and Sadducees, the council. That's the plot. That's the plot. If we don't take away Jesus, then you might as well take away us. So don't confuse me with the reality that he's doing what he's doing and it's real. Don't confuse me with any of those facts. Don't confuse me with who he is. The reality is he has to go away. Jesus isn't for me. That's the plot. Let's look at the prophecy. The prophecy. Verse 49 and 50, But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account the expediency for you that one man should die for the people, that the whole nation should not perish. There's an interesting philosophy that's going on today about solving problems. It's what I call the philosophy of expediency. The philosophy of expediency. You say, what is that? Expediency. Just simply this. It doesn't matter what's right. It doesn't matter if it's wrong. The only thing that matters is how it will affect me. How it will affect me. It doesn't Right and wrong is irrelevant to the issue. The issue is... How is it going to affect me? How will such and such affect my income? How will such and such affect my status? How will such and such affect my happiness as I like it? And how will it affect whatever pressure I may be under at the time? Don't tell me what I need to know. Just tell me what will make me happy in my present situation. What is the fastest way to get around this roadblock that seems to be in the way? This is the philosophy of expediency that we are see operating in the hearts of this council. The Sanhedrin is operating according to self-serving situation ethics. If we can just get rid of Christ the fastest way we can, our lives will be preserved. They want to preserve their own comfort. They want to preserve their own position, their own power own place. The only way they can do that is to get Christ out of the way. They were out for what they could get. Because of that, they had no ability to discern truth. What am I going to get out of this? They're blinded to the truth of it all. And so Caiaphas, the chief among the chiefs, if you will, Caiaphas says, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it's expedient or that it's this expediency for one man should die for the people that the whole nation should 
perish not. Caiaphas, the high priest, he didn't care about shedding innocent blood. He had no care for that. He was the leader, and yet he was the biggest hypocrite in the whole bunch. He said, in effect, if you don't get rid of Jesus, Jesus is going to lead a rebellion. Guys, listen to me. You guys don't know anything at all. If you don't get rid of Jesus, he's going to lead a rebellion. Rome's going to come in, squash the rebellion. We're all going to die. So, men, you either Jesus dies or the nation dies. That's the idea. Either Jesus goes or we go. Don't you even understand that? That's what he's saying. Caiaphas was suggesting murder under the guise of national patriotism. Get rid of the people. If you don't get rid of the if you don't get rid of Jesus, the Rome's going to get rid of us. Doesn't matter what's right. Only what's going to help our cause. Give me expediency. That's his idea. I don't care if it's right or not. Give me expediency. Either Christ dies or we all die. Yet Caiaphas had no idea what he was saying. He had no idea what he's saying. You know, this is verse 51 and 52. Now this he did not say on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The words of Caiaphas that come out of his mouth are the very words of a prophecy concerning the death of Jesus Christ. Caiaphas says in verse 50, Don't you consider that it's expedient for us that one man should die for the people instead of the nation dies. Don't you think it's expedient for us to do that? I mean, come on, guys, don't you know anything? That was an accurate prophecy. Christ did die for the nation. Died so that the people would not perish. So God, by His grace, out of the degenerate mouth of the high priest, comes the truth of God. And the words that he speaks out of pride, Caiaphas speaks to save his own neck, out of his own blasphemy, are transformed by God into a prophecy with a deeper meaning. We wouldn't know that, of course, unless the Spirit of God, through John, put these words here in verse 51 and 52. Caiaphas certainly is totally unaware that he's speaking the truth of God. He has no idea what he's saying. But aren't you glad that he didn't know what he was saying? Aren't you glad that God can take some someone who opposes the purposes of God, someone who clearly is out against God, someone who clearly has this philosophy of expediency, and God uses them for his glory? Aren't you glad of that? glad of the reality that God didn't just let Caiaphas speak and it not be a prophecy. Here's what the psalmist says. David said this in Psalm 76.10, The wrath of man shall praise him. <laughs> That's exactly what you see here. The wrath of man praising God. 
carrying out the plan of God. Psalm 2, verse 4, David said, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Man plans this evilness against the Holy One of God, and God takes that and just laughs. Psalm 2, who's he talking about? Those of the world that stand against Jesus Christ, God is just laughing at them. You see, the council thinks they're killing Jesus. And in killing Jesus, they'll save the nation. You see, they think if Jesus dies, it's expedient for them. Let's just get rid of this one guy. All of our trouble will be gone. The nation will be saved. Our position will go. Our power will continue on. We'll we'll preserve everybody. They think by killing Jesus, they're saving a nation. And the perplexing thing about it is that they killed Jesus and lost the nation too. First century historian Josephus tells us that after they crucified Christ, the Christians began to be scattered by persecution. Persecution began to heat up. The Christians began to be scattered across the globe. There was a revolutionary spirit that began to grow in ancient Palestine against the Christians, so much so, in fact, that a war broke out. The Romans stepped in to crush the revolt. That was in A.D. 70, some 40 years after the death of Christ. They killed Christ, and for 40 years, things seemed to go until one day this revolutionary idea began to break out, and the Romans got very scared about it, came in and crushed the city of Jerusalem. It was destroyed, and the temple was left in ruins. They killed Jesus and lost the nation. According to conservative estimates, As to the date when John wrote this gospel, it was some 20 years after A.D. 70, after the fall of Jerusalem. John wrote this around A.D. 90. John was writing these words, and I could only imagine that not one of the people who first read the gospel of John, as John had written these words and given them to the church, the irony of what was said by Caiaphas and what took place afterwards would have been ringing. They would have thought, wait a minute, he didn't save anybody. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 25, whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall find it. The perplexity of that verse in Matthew 16 rings clear. When we think of the prophecy of God spoken through the mouth of one who hated Jesus Christ. Caiaphas is trying to save his life, and yet he loses it. Trying to save the lives of the nation by rejecting Christ. Caiaphas trying his his best to tell his, his other cohorts in the council that they have no idea what they're doing. We have to get rid of Jesus Christ. And when he gets rid of Jesus Christ trying to save his life, he loses it. He loses it both spiritually, he loses it physically. The promise is that for those who are willing to embrace Christ by faith and lose their life for his will in fact gain their life 
spiritually and forever in eternity. Why? Because Christ Jesus did not come just to die for the Jews, but for all who believe. That's why Caiaphas' prophecy said, for the one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should perish. And yet, it says of the prophecy that Jesus is going to die for the nation in verse 51, and not for the nation only, but for also for those that he might gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus not only died for Israel, but he died for the Gentile also. Each one of us knows that's us. All of us who are non-Jews, all the other children of God scattered throughout the world, so he might make those one group. When Caiaphas was making that prophecy, God was fulfilling that prophecy in Jesus Christ to die not just for the Jews, but for you and I, Gentiles, those whom he would save from the Gentile world. That's what makes this passage so wonderful for you and I. It seems rather interesting that John would put it here, and yet it's here for everybody. God did not leave us out. Even back in the prophecy of an evil man, the high priest, you and I were included. We were there on the mind of God so that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. It's the great mystery of the church, isn't it? The great mystery of all of us here tonight who, who sit here, who know Jesus Christ, who understand that we are in Christ. Ephesians 2.14 says, Christ's death has broken down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. Galatians 3.28, all who place their faith in Christ become one in Him. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither bond nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, that is our positional unity within the family of God. There is no ethnic separation. We are one in Christ. Christianity is not a system of religious activities. Somebody does their little activities over here. Somebody else does their little activities over here. No, it's actually a love relationship with Jesus Christ and other believers. It's what we heard testimony of tonight, just through the modern day of, of electronic emails. Someone who realizes they have a brother in Christ all the way across the country that they didn't even know about just simply from an email and the words being used, the common language of the believer. So what's the reaction of the council? What's the reaction of the council? We see the plot. We see the perplexity. What's their reaction? that day on, verse 53, they planned together to kill him. What a sad conclusion. The council concludes that the giver of life deserves death. They begin to plot how they're going to carry it out. 
And of course, Jesus, knowing their intent, because his time had not yet come, verse 54 says, Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. But he went away from there to the country near the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim. There he stayed with the disciples. The end of Jesus' ministry is approaching. Beginning in chapter 12, we begin the final week of Jesus Christ's life. And because of the increasing opposition, because the hostility from the point of this moment goes all the way through the end of the Gospel of John, Jesus finds it necessary to escape for his life. Why? Because it's not yet his time to die. He knows his time. His time has not yet come. And so he's driven out of Jerusalem for the last time. So you have the plot, you have the prophecy, you have the perplexing reality of it all. You have the response of the council. But how do the crowds respond? Those who did not yet know of the plot. How did they respond to Jesus? How did they respond to the raising of Lazarus or to the news that had gone out about the raising of Lazarus? Notice verse 55 and 56. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. Many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Jesus is now in the country. And therefore they're seeking for Jesus. And they're saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Is that what you think? There was a sense, a sense of excitement brewing. It seemed to be among the multitudes of people who were on the outskirts of Jerusalem, those who lived in the country who were coming to Jerusalem for the feast. There was some kind of excitement for the people as they begin to arrive in Jerusalem, begin the preparation for the Passover as they would come to purify themselves and go through the ritual purification process. Jesus, on his part, had been at least at the last two Passovers during the gospel accounts. And since his popularity made him quite an attraction, the people sought him out. They wanted to see if he was going to come. Christ was somewhat of a novelty to the people. They had heard about him. Some had witnessed him. So he was kind of a novelty. I was thinking about that. That's kind of how people respond to Christ today. It's kind of their attitude towards Christianity in many ways. It's a novelty. They view it as a spectator sport. Don't participate in it. Just watch. Sit on the sidelines. Watch it. The sad part is sometimes we have churches that are filled with people like that. Jesus watchers. They look. Look at what's going on with some kind of detached interest just like these people were. I wonder if he's going to come to the feast at all. People have no commitment of faith because they have no salvation. Because they have no salvation, there's no love for the people of Christ. They just sit on the sidelines. They superficially get involved with religion only to watch. It's ironic that those same type of people in Jesus' day 
also cried out in just a few days in the narrative of this gospel. When Jesus is about to be condemned, these are the very same people that say crucify him. These people who are curious at the feast are the same people who order his death. Matthew 12.30, Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me. So many people want to attach themselves today to Jesus without making a commitment to Him. When the pressure mounts, when the pressure is on, when you have to stand up for your faith, when you have to give an accounting for the hope that lies within you, they become part of the plot. Just get rid of Jesus. That makes it easier on me. The philosophy of expediency comes out, and it comes out quickly. When there's a demand upon their life because they have attached themselves to the thing called Christianity and a demand comes and it says, this is how you ought to live. No, I don't want anything to do with that. I'll get rid of that and I'll go my own way. Exactly what you see here. Very people who are curious about Jesus Christ are the very people that in a few short hours will say, crucify him. Verse 57 says, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anybody knew where he was, they should report it so they might seize him. You'd think it would end a little differently, don't you? And after all, here's the man who raises the dead. You'd think it wouldn't do that. You'd think it wouldn't say that at the end. You'd think at the end it would say, Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it, that we might run to him and worship him. Doesn't say that. We might seize him. I guess that takes us to the title of my message. What do we do with Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? Maybe that's just a good question for us to end with. What have you done with Jesus? Have you rejected him? Or do you follow him? What have you done with Jesus? Well, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for the way in which we can identify really in many ways with what has happened here. We live in a world that wants to reject you in every way. We live in a day and age that seemingly doesn't want to have anything to do with you, that lives by this philosophy of expediency to get rid of you for the sake of their own necks. Sometimes, Lord, we'd have to confess we do the same thing in our lives and our hearts. Forgive us, if you would, forgive us by the righteousness of our Savior Jesus Christ when we fail to answer up, when we knowingly 
Don't tell others about Jesus Christ because we fear a relationship with them might be strained. Forgive us when we don't open our mouths because we fear that we might lose our job. Standing with Christ means that it's a dangerous thing. Lord, we pray for those in power, those who have power even in our own country, that you would protect those who know you, that you have drawn into your own family by Christ. We pray that you would protect them, cause them to be bold regardless of the consequences. Cause our nation to rise up in righteousness, not because of some morality, but because of repentance. Bring across this land a sense of revival in the hearts of men, women, seeing their sin as they see themselves before Jesus Christ. May they see Christ for who He is, the giver of life, the bread of life, the drink of life, the very reality that they need for life. Help us to not live by a philosophy of expediency, but, Father, just to stand with You no matter what that means, no matter what it costs. Not to be curious sideline watchers in this thing called Christianity, but to be fully engaged, serving You in every way, So that your name would be honored, praised. So that we would be eclipsed, unseen. And your glory would be reflected in all of its beauty. That others might see Christ and glorify you and Christ. We pray these things tonight. Help us do that. for your. Pr- in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.